So page 473 in the Red Pew Bibles. I'm going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the entire chapter. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. Whatever is has already been, and what will be has been before, and God will call the past into account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of animal goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work, because that is his lot. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Let's pray, shall we? Father, we want to thank you for your word, and we thank you that we can meet here uh, in uh, comfort. And uh, we thank you, Father God, that you, we have your Holy Spirit who... Uh, uh, who takes your word and, and changes our mind and penetrates our heart. And so we pray that that would be happening for us and for the children as well as we consider your word this morning today. And we pray these things in the precious name of our Saviour. Amen. Well, every so often people do press the pause button on life, don't they? and uh, do some thinking about the big questions. It, it seems to me that uh, we tend to do that when difficult things happen that are beyond our control. Uh, you might remember the, the day that two passenger jets slammed into the Twin Towers, or uh, the day that the earth shook and a wave swept across the Indian Ocean, wiping out 
hundreds of thousands of people. And it's times like that that we kind of press the pause button and we ask the big questions. Sometimes it's the uh, more personal disasters that are beyond our control, like the conversation with the doctor that changes your life and causes you to reflect on what it's all about. Sometimes it's the beautiful things, isn't it? Uh, it's uh, going out into the night sky on a clear night, away from the town and looking up at the sky and seeing the thousands of stars. Or it might be that experience, that profound and humbling experience where you take in your arms a baby who's just been born and delight in the Lord's creation. I wonder what are the events of life that cause you to stop and reflect and ask the big questions? Sometimes it's not events, is it? Sometimes it's the more mundane aspects of life. Uh, as I spoke about last week, the, uh, the experimental rat-on-the-wheel aspect of life. You get up in the morning, you, you go to work, you slog it out, you come home, you rest, you eat, you sleep, you get up, you go to work, you slog it out, you come home, you rest, you eat, and then on and on and on it goes. And sometimes you kind of ask the question, what am I doing? What's it all for? What's the purpose in this? You know, we know in our hearts, don't we, that there must be a greater reality than just the things which we do in life. Uh, we know in our hearts that there must be a greater reality which injects meaning into what we do in this mortal life, but we don't know what that meaning is. We don't know what that reality is. And, and it's this puzzle of knowing, but yet not knowing, that the author of Ecclesiastes wants us to wrestle with. Uh, as we look at this passage today in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And so I wonder if you might open that up in your Bibles and uh, come with me on this journey through this uh, intriguing passage of Scripture. And I guess it would be true to say that there are not too many passages from the Bible that have been put to music and have hit number one on the secular charts. Would that be a fair comment? But Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verses 1 to 8 did. Uh, the year was 1965. The band was, can anyone tell me? Some, Tim? The Birds. It's good to see there's a few middle-aged people around. <laughs> well, I'm looking out on you guys. You're so, you know, many of you are so young, I'm thinking you don't have a clue what I'm talking about here. But it was 1965. The Birds covered a song which was written by someone else in 1959. And it made it to uh, number one on the Billboard uh, charts in the US. The name of the song was, Tim, can you help us out? Turn, 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 turn. And it holds the world record for being the number one song with the oldest lyrics. This is a song that was written 3,000 years ago, 
But I've got to tell you, this is more than just a folk song from the 1960s that people thought was worth buying records for. It's a song which actually gets us to think about uh, some of the biggest issues of life. And because in verses 1 to, eight, 1 to 8, the teacher, and remember in Ecclesiastes we're looking at the words of the teacher, the teacher speaks to us about the rhythm of life. There is a time to be born and a time to die. There is a time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal. There's a time to weep, there's a time to laugh, and so on he goes as he describes the events and also the emotions of life. Now I want you to notice two things. First of all, he tells us that there is a time for each of these things. But there's a question here and that is, who establishes that time? Who sets those times? Who is in control of the times? That's a question that's left dangling. He doesn't answer that question for us. He just simply talks about there is a time, an appropriate time for all of these things. And secondly, in verse 2, he reminds us of our mortality because there is a time to be born and there is a time to die. Um, I was uh, speaking with a group of friends the other day, uh, in a, not in a church environment, and uh, one of the guys said uh, that his mother had bought him a birthday present. Two things you know about birthday presents. It's a present that you buy in order to celebrate your birth. And the second thing is that you don't want to buy someone a birthday present that they're not going to use. So his mother decided to buy him something that she knew that he would need one day. And on his birthday, she handed him the papers for his burial plot. <laughs> and he said, thanks, Mum. <laughs> But these are the two bookends of life, aren't they? Uh, and uh, you start with your birth, you finish with your death, you start, from, it's from, what do they say? It's from the, uh, from the womb to the grave. And what, he, what follows in verses 3 through to 8 is all of the things that we fill up our time with and our lives between those two bookends. All of the things which we do in life but over it all hangs the issue of our mortality. That bit of paper that says you now own a burial plot. And so in verse 9, he asks the big question, what is it all about? What does the worker gain from all of his toil? And that really sets for us the backdrop for the two big puzzles, two big puzzles that he wants us to wrestle with uh, in this passage. We're going to look at those two puzzles separately. The first puzzle about life is found in verses 9 through to 15. Let me just read a few of those verses, 9 to 11. 9 to 11. Sorry, I just have to find Ecclesiastes 3. Got it. In verse 9, he says, What does the worker gain from all of his toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on men, 
He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Now, I wonder if you can see what the puzzle is there. Uh, We think about all of the things which we do in life, but when we consider the framework of life, those two bookends, there's time to be born and a time to die, when we are confronted with the issue of death, irrespective of all of the things which we've done in life, we, 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 like to, we, we, we don't like to think of the idea that death is the end, that there is no more. Uh, we don't like to think, as I guess atheists, some atheists would want us to think, that uh, we, we are just lumps of excited matter and the reason we die is because we've just come to the end of our natural life cycle and that's all that there is. We don't like to think that way. And that's true of all of humanity, all over the world. All different kinds of people from different races and different um, living in different places from... The, the remote villages in Papua New Guinea through to sophisticated cities like New York City, people everywhere have this sense that death is not the end, that there is an eternal reality. But in verses 10 through to 11, that is actually a burden for us because God has set eternity in our hearts but we've got no idea what that eternity is. We've got no idea what God has been doing, what his plan is from the beginning to the end. And so we're puzzled by it. And I think we see this at funerals. I I sometimes do funerals and I listen to a good number of eulogies that people give uh, where they will stand up and they will want to talk about, and, and they're often very brave in doing so, but they, they, will, they will talk about this person, um, you know, when, when she was born and where she was born and uh, what she did in her life, um, you know, her, her work and her family and the, uh, the, the sports that she played and the hobbies that she had and the ups and the downs that she had in life and so on. But I've, n- I've never heard anyone go on to say uh, something like, but, but now it's all over. And there's nothing left of mum. Um, She's just a corpse in a box. And that's it. Ever heard anyone say that in a funeral eulogy? No, they're far more likely to want to talk, even if it's just in kind of vague, very vague terms, they want to say, well, no, she's now in some kind of a heavenly existence or uh, that she's now gone to join the great spirit in the sky. Actually had someone play that song at a funeral, Spirit in the Sky, <laughs> and uh, which was better than the one who played Bad Out of Hell. But anyway, that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> or wanted to, I said no. Um, uh, or, or they'll say, well, you know, she, um, we're sure that she's up there now with Dad and they're probably having a drink together and so on. And, and what you can see there is, is that there is... We know about eternity in our hearts, but we don't really know what that eternity is. And so we're just left with these vague notions. And so in verses 12 through to 15, the, the teacher says that 
since we don't understand eternity, then let's just try to enjoy what we do understand. Um, Our mortal life is a gift from God, so let's just enjoy it. Let's just eat and drink and and be merry and, and the puzzle is not resolved. It's just left hanging for us. So that's the first puzzle. There is a second puzzle in this passage and uh, he raises it for us in the rest of the chapter. Uh, Let me read verses 16 through to 17 for you. Verse 16. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. Now, this is the issue of justice. A few days ago, I was speaking with a man from Zimbabwe. And he was started. To, he could have talked to me for hours. We only had a few minutes. He started to talk to me about the atrocities that the Mugabe government has committed against their people. Now, we tend to look to our government and to our courts and our police for justice, don't we? Uh, Not in Zimbabwe. No, in the place of justice, that's where, well, for example, he told me that before an election that uh, Mugabe's men would go to a village and they would have a chat with the headman of the village and if they sensed that he was in any way sympathetic to the opposition then they would gather all of the villagers together and they would stand there with the headman and they'd slit his throat as a warning to anybody else. He told me that at one point in time lots of families started to report that their husbands and their, fa- and their, and their fathers and their sons were were missing. I didn't know where they were. There were some uh, Christian people, actually, it turned out, uh, who started documenting all of this. And it turned out that uh, when they added it up, there was about 40,000 men who'd been kidnapped and had been thrown down disused mines to die. 40,000 men. And there was a sense uh, in which... Uh, this man was expressing to me a sense of hopelessness, absolute hopelessness, because the ones who are supposed to ensure justice, they're the ones who are committing the crimes. And I said to this man, I said, one day Mugabe will die and after death will face judgment. And in his response to that, and I don't know where he stands Christianly, but in his response to that, there was this sense of, yes, I want to believe that that will take place, that that is true. And that's what the teacher says here. He says, I looked in the place of justice and what did I find? What does he say? Wickedness. I looked in the place of judgment and what did I find? Wickedness. And so he says, well, I thought in my heart, well, there will be a time for God's judgment. 
Now, just as an aside, a lot of people aren't too happy about the idea of God being a judging God, are they? I don't know if you've noticed this, even in some churches, people will say, well, God, you know, he's like that grandfatherly kind of figure in the sky and God is all love and let's just emphasise the love of God and, and don't talk too much about the judgement of God. You, you come across that? And, and yet, you know what, uh, they, they're, they're fine about judgement when it comes to the idea of people like Mugabe being judged, but their problem is that they don't want to be judged themselves. And yet, it's this issue of judgment that, uh, in one sense, injects meaning into our lives. Because the fact that God holds us to account, the fact that God will judge us, actually tells us something about us, doesn't it? It tells us that who you are as a person and how you live your life actually matters. It matters. It's important. You are important. How you live your life is important. And that is made clear by the act of God's judgment. So it actually injects meaning uh, into our lives. But in verse 18, having, having said that I want to believe that there is a day of judgment, in verse 18 he says, but then again I thought, well maybe we humans, we're just just the same as animals. Uh, not in the sense of how we behave. I think animals behave a bit better than Mugabe, but in the sense of our value. Let's have a look at verse, uh, pick it up at verse 19, uh, where he says, Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises up and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. And so I saw that there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work, because that is his lot. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? So here's the puzzle. He wants to believe that after death there will be a day of judgment, but then he thinks, ah, oh, maybe we're just all like animals. Uh, maybe we just return to dust and there's nothing more. Just like, I don't know, we've, we've got a little graveyard in our backyard. You know, we've a couple of guinea pigs there, um, you know, uh, that, who just kind of didn't make it through various aspects of life. And... You know, he's saying that maybe we're just like those guinea pigs, you know. There's nothing that comes after death. It's just like the dogs and the cats and the kangaroos and the cockroaches and, you know, we, we just return to dust. Who knows what happens after we die? Maybe there is no day of judgment. That's the issue. Now... It's not hard to see why some people think, what on earth is this doing in the Bible? <laughs> but what the, the teacher wants us to do is he wants us to just step off the treadmill of life just for a few moments and to ask the big questions. Not only to ask the big questions, but to feel those questions. To feel them, to feel their gravity. 
And that is exactly God's purpose. Because if you check out verse 14, uh, why is it that God has set eternity in our hearts but he's not told us what that eternity is like? Why is that? Well, because he wants us to revere him. It's actually something that ought to be leading us to worship him. How does that happen? Well, uh, if you check out verse 18, why does God want us to see that that we're just like the animals. What does it say? Because he wants to test us. And I, I take it that what, what it's saying here is that God wants us to understand these things. He wants us to reflect on these things. He wants us to feel these things because he wants us to be troubled in our hearts so that we might ask the questions about eternity about justice, about meaning. And why? So that we'd ask the right questions and maybe seek after him. You see, Ecclesiastes leaves these questions unanswered. But the Bible doesn't. Uh, what the Bible does is that particularly the Old Testament move, keeps on moving us forward, doesn't it? God progressively reveals more and more of his truth to us and that truth, those questions are ultimately answered in Jesus. And one passage where we see this, in fact, is in Acts chapter 17. And I wonder if you might even flip over to Acts chapter 17 for a few moments. Remember Acts 17? Paul was... In Greece, wasn't he? He was in Athens. And Athens was a place that was... The, 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 the puzzles that are raised in Ecclesiastes would have really resonated with Athenians, with Greeks. Because Athens was full of philosophers. And what do philosophers do? Philosophers ask questions about life, don't they? Right? Was it Socrates that said the unexamined life is not worth living? And it was also not only full of philosophers but it was full of idolaters as well and Paul noticed this as he was walking around in Athens uh, he noticed all of the idols that they'd set up for uh, various gods and if you have a look at verse 22 uh, Paul went to a meeting of the Areopagus and he said men of Athens I see that in every way you are very religious for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I'm about to proclaim it to you. You see what he's noticed there? He's, these Athenians, they, they knew that there's got to be an eternal reality. They knew that there must be a God, but they didn't know who the God was. It set up this idol to an unknown God. And Paul goes on to say, well, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by hands and is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men 
that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times. Get this, he was the one who determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. Why did God do this? So that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Ecclesiastes posed the question that there is a time for everything under in our lives. Who is it who sets those times? It is God. It is the Lord of heaven and earth, the one who has created, the one who has made you, the one who gives you every breath of life. And why? Well, so that we would seek after him and maybe find him. Verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like God or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed and he's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Will there be a day of judgment? Yes, there will be a day of judgment. In fact, God has written the exact day of judgment in his calendar. The date has been set. How do we know that? How can we be sure? Well, the man who he has appointed to be the judge died, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of that. Paul could say with the other apostles. And then in verse 32 to 34, some of them said, Well, that's a load of rubbish. And others said, hey, maybe this is the answer that we've been looking for. Maybe this resolves all of those puzzles and tensions that the philosophers have raised. And we know have been raised in Ecclesiastes. And they believed. And you see that the resurrection of God's son, Jesus, is the resolution to the puzzles. Because if the bones of Jesus were still lying in a tomb somewhere outside of Jerusalem, then we would be stuck back in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, knowing that there's some kind of eternal reality but not knowing what it is, hoping that there might be a day of justice but not knowing for sure. Maybe we are just like the animals. Maybe it is all just meaningless. When I was in my late teens, um, I was a non-Christian and I, I actually was, you know, in a sense troubled by some of these same kind of issues. I'd look at life and I'd look at the busyness of everything that we do and I remember one day looking at an ant's nest and thinking, wow, these guys are pretty busy as well. They're foraging for food, they're carrying stuff, they're storing it away, they're building their little tunnels and you know, the Queen's giving birth and all of this is happening and I could go and stamp my foot on them and just blot them out. 
And I thought, I wonder, are we humans any different to that? I thought, we've got to be. There's got to be some sort of a reality out there that uh, makes us different. And thankfully, I met a Christian who was able to show me the answers. And if you have a look at the passage I've printed for you on the back of your sheets from, um, uh, from I think it's 1 Timothy chapter 1, where uh, we're, we're told here that uh, the, the questions have been posed, that God has been revealing the answers to us, and now God has finally revealed the answers in the gospel, uh, where Paul is able to say, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour Christ Jesus who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The death of Jesus has paid for sin. The death of Jesus has destroyed that gloomy thing which hung over all of our lives, and that is our death. He's destroyed death. He's paid for our guilt. And he's been raised from the light, from, from death himself. He has been brought back to life and has secured for us our eternal home with God in heaven, where he is now seated at the right hand of God, from where he will come on the day of judgment. And there will be justice. All people will be held accountable. All sin will be dealt with. We want to make sure that we're covered with the blood of, of Jesus ourselves, don't we? We want to make sure that the death of Jesus means that we have no fear of that day of judgment because he's paid our debt for us. So the resurrection of Jesus resolves the puzzles. And that's what we need to be sharing with our non-Christian friends. But the, the issue there is that uh, when we're sharing the gospel with people, that we, we need to kind of ascertain where they're at in their thinking, don't we? And we need to, to start where they're at. Uh, if we come on full bore talking about the death and the resurrection of Jesus without actually even trying to discover where their thinking's at, then we might be jumping the gun just a little bit. And so sometimes this means that we need to take the Ecclesiastes approach. Uh, I, I know a non-Christian man who works, he's a businessman and he works very, very hard. I think he works seven days a week, 52 weeks of the year. That's what it sounds like to me when I, when I talk to him. And when I speak to him, and you know what they say, don't you, that there is no businessman who on his deathbed regrets that he didn't spend enough time at the office. And you can understand why. When I speak to this man I, and I ask him, how are you going? How's life treating you? <sighs> He's always very depressed. <laughs> and he says, in his own way, he says to me, oh, Scott, um, I'm, just, I'm just flat out. You know, I'm, I'm up to my neck in, in work. I'm just working, working all the time and... 
and I'm always so tired and uh, oh, he said, it's just, you know, it's just meaningless. Now, what's the worst thing that I can say to him in response to that? Look, you may not believe this, but I actually think I try to be a pretty encouraging kind of person and when I see a person who's finding difficulties, I try to say something that encourages them, but in this situation, I think the worst thing that I can say to him when he says, oh, it's all just meaningless, worst thing I can say to him is, oh, no, it's not. <laughs> worst thing I can say to him is, no, you're doing it. It's all good. You're doing a good job. You're a hard-working person and you're doing it for your family and you know, you're know you able to pay the school fees for them and educate them and provide well for your kids. No, no, you keep at it. Now, that might be true in some sense, but it's not what he needs to hear. What he needs to hear is, you know, I think you're right. It does seem a bit meaningless, doesn't it? Have you ever thought that there might be some something else in life? <laughs> you ever, ever think about God? And just see where the conversation goes from there. But to stir him up, to affirm that he's right in thinking that it's meaningless, so that he might start to ask the bigger questions. I wonder if you sometimes have conversations with people you know, the kind of conversations where someone's reflecting on what they've seen on the news or on the TV and, and they say, oh, I just don't know what's, what's happening to the world. You know that kind of conversation? They always seem to think that these things never happened in the past. <laughs> Have you noticed that? They go, oh, that's just terrible. It's crime and wars and people like Mugabe and, you know, what's, what's happening Carbon tax, sorry. <laughs> what's happening to our world? <laughs> well, what's the worst thing you could say? I think the worst thing you could say is, yeah, I, I don't know what's happening to the world either. <laughs> you know, and the conversation goes nowhere. I think maybe you want to say to the person something like, yeah, it's terrible, isn't it? Do you ever think that one day there might be a day of judgment? Just drop that one into the conversation and see where it heads. See where the conversation goes. Because I think that's what Ecclesiastes wants us to do. You know, at the beginning of this passage, it's, it's just not some quaint sort of folk song from the 1960s that people liked. It's there, it's designed for us to be thinking about the bigger issues. And as Christians, A, I think that from time to time we actually need to take stock of our own lives and wonder if we're putting God first in the way we should or if we've just sort of been drift, if we're actually on the treadmill. But B, I think that Ecclesiastes can help us as we think about how to help other people to come to know to, to, to seek after and to find the truth that is found in Jesus. All right? I think we need to stop. Let's pray, shall we? Father in heaven, we want to thank you for this provocative word from Scripture and we want to pray for ourselves that we would be people who are not on the treadmill, that we uh, take the time to 
get off that treadmill ourselves and to reflect on where we're at, to take stock of our own lives and to consider whether or not we're actually, we're actually living in the light of the resurrection of Jesus ourselves. And we pray, Father God, that you would open up opportunities for us to speak with people who are confused about these realities because they've not received the revelation of the gospel of Jesus. And help us, Lord God, to provoke their thinking in the way that you intend uh, that they might actually be drawn into asking some of the deeper questions and seeking after you and finding you in your Son, Christ Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.